0: Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 139, and if you couldn't tell from the music, it's on very bad Tudor marriages. And for those of you who pay close attention to what I say I'm going to do in the next episodes, yes, I have an episode on Thomas Eliot's book, The Governor, due as well, and that is also ready to record. But because this is Valentine's Day coming up, I'm switching the order. So stay tuned for the Thomas Eliot episode. I have not forgotten about it. All right. First, before we get into the bad romance, I want to remind you that TudorCon is about eight months away. Three days of partying like it's 1520 at the Field of Cloth of Gold in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, with your newest, best Tudor-loving friends. englandcast.com slash TudorCon for all the information. Also, I want to share the Agora Podcast of the month for February. We do, of course, like to recommend other podcasts from the Agora Podcast Network, and there are some great shows that are part of the network. This month, if you're looking for something new to listen to, you can check out all of Travis and Pete's projects at podcastnik.com. That's P O D C A S T N I K, podcastnik.com. Now, what Travis and Pete do, they have a show called The Secret Cabinet, which is a show on the weirder parts of histories. Travis also does the history of Germany. And they have a show called Past Access with Pete Coleman on YouTube, where Pete travels to report back on local history and culture. And tips on accessible travel to cities like Stockholm, Rome, Dresden, Barcelona, and many, many more. So, again, podcastnick.com if you want to expand your podcast listening this month. All right, now let's talk about bad romances of the 16th century. Of course, there's Henry and Anne, the most famous, but there were scores of terrible marriages during this time, just as there are today. And just because you couldn't get divorced, didn't mean you couldn't figure out ways of walking away. So let's say you find yourself in love and married and then out of love, but still married. How did you walk away? And why would you take that big step? Well, here's a fun fact. In 16th century Constantinople, where coffee was becoming a huge part of society in everyday life, they created a law saying that any woman could divorce her husband if he didn't provide her with enough coffee. So ladies Get those Starbucks cards to your husbands and have them run out for your cappuccinos and remind them that if they don't, if you were in 16th century Constantinople, you could leave them. So that's a fun fact. But what about England? Let's go through some bad marriages from the Tudor period. Some of them ended in divorce, some ended in death, and some ended in both people just being miserable and avoiding each other as much as possible. The first one I want to talk about is the Duke of Norfolk. He was toxic. The toxic Duke, who schemed and plotted his way throughout most of Henry VIII's reign, was married to Elizabeth Stafford, the good duchess. Elizabeth, of course, had a house full of servants. One of them was called Bess Holland. Bess worked in the laundry. She was the daughter of the Duke's secretary. But Bess caught the Duke's notice, and he began paying attention to her. He even brought her to court and lived openly with her, leaving his wife back to, you know, tend to the household duties. Bess became a maid of honor to the Toxic Duke's niece, Anne Boleyn. And she had a relationship with Toxic Duke for 15 years, but she probably didn't feel as affectionate towards him as he did to her. When he was arrested, along with his son, she gave testimony that sealed his fate. The younger Howard was executed right before Henry's death, and the elder one, her Amour, was saved just because Henry died. They were actually considered Henry VIII's last victims, and the elder Duke of Norfolk was scheduled to be executed, and then Henry died, so he got a reprieve. The elder Howard lived on. He languished in prison during the reign of Edward VI. But then he was let out during Mary's reign because he was Catholic, and so was Mary, and so she let him out. After he was arrested, though, poor Bess got married, finally. And then I say poor Bess because she died in childbirth. So, you know, she thought she was finally getting a chance to marry for love, and that ended very badly. And then there was, of course, the toxic duke's long-suffering wife. Elizabeth Stafford had originally been meant to marry her father's ward. But after the Duke's first wife died, Thomas Howard came calling. Her father tried to persuade him to marry one of her sisters, but he would have none of it, and he insisted on marrying Elizabeth. She was 15, and he was 20 years older than her, which wasn't particularly unusual for the time, but it rather broke Elizabeth's heart. Then Howard starts his open affair with Bess Holland, and then Elizabeth stayed loyal to the Queen, to Queen Catherine while Howard installed his various nieces in the king's bed and made his daughter marry the king's illegitimate son. So, you know, that provided for some pretty difficult political conversations. The duke refused to give up his mistress. He decided he was going to separate from his wife. Both the duke and Thomas Cromwell requested that the duchess's brother take her in, which was a suggestion that he flatly turned down. The Duchess wrote of her husband's abuse of her during this period, claiming that when she was recovering after the birth of their daughter, Mary, he had pulled her out of bed by the hair, dragged her through the house, and wounded her with a dagger. In three separate letters to Cromwell, the Duchess repeated the accusation that the Duke had set his woman to bind me till blood came out at my fingers' ends, and pinnacled me and sat on my breast till I spit blood. So Howard responded to this by writing that, I think the apparent false lies were never contrived by a wife of her husband that she doth daily increase of me. So he denied it. This marriage was clearly not going to work. And in 1534, Howard forced a separation. According to the Duchess, the Duke had ridden all night, he arrived home in a temper Locked her in her chamber and taken away all of her jewelry and her clothing. She was sent to another house. She wrote a lot of letters to Cromwell, complained that she was kept in this state of imprisonment. There's a lot of parallels between her and Catherine of Aragon. And at first, the Duchess tried to reconcile, but then she received no reply. So she said that from this day forward, I will never sue to the king nor to none other to desire my lord, my husband, to take me again. So she was like, I'm done. Of course, Norfolk refused to give up Bess Holland, and he attempted to persuade the Duchess to agree to a divorce. He offered to return her jewels, which he had stolen from her, and he said he would give her a great part of his plate and stuff of household, but she was like, no, I'm not doing it. She wasn't going to give in. She suffered for this. Her family didn't support her. Her son and her daughter became estranged from her, and her brother disavowed her. She was forsaken by almost everyone, but she stayed stubborn and she wasn't going to give in. And in 1539, so this is years into it, she wrote to Cromwell, I am of age to rule myself as I have done these five years since my husband put me away. Seeing that my lord, my husband reckoned me to be so unreasonable, it were better that I kept me away and keep my own house still and trouble no other body. I pray you, my lord, take no displeasure with me, although I have not followed your lordship's good counsel and your letters as touching my lord husband for me to come home again, which I will never do. So, not a good time in the Howard household. Another Bess that had a truly terrible marriage was Bess of Hardwick, who was on her fourth marriage to George Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury, when he was charged with guarding Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, at first, this seemed like it was going to be a good deal. They were going to get the approval of the Queen, and Bess appreciated having the trust of the Queen. She even set about trying to prove herself spying on Mary herself. But the stress got to both Bess and the Earl as time went on, and it didn't seem like there was going to be any escape from this. Guarding Mary meant that they were essentially prisoners themselves, because if they left and Mary escaped, they, of course, would be blamed. So Bess was getting really tired of this. She was also feeling quite jealous of Mary Queen of Scots, who was very beautiful and charming at this time, and the attention that her husband was paying towards her. So she did not want to take the blame for the breakdown of the marriage. So she spread rumors that Mary Queen of Scots had been sleeping with her husband and had borne him at least one child, possibly several. Mary Queen of Scots was not happy with this slur on her reputation, and she complained loudly about the foul slanders and insolence of this vulgar minded woman. Now the Queen Elizabeth herself actually tried to intervene and tried to reconcile Bess and her husband, playing marriage counselor. She was very fond of the Earl of George Talbot, but she seems to have felt some sympathy and some empathy with Bess. And George Talbot's claims that Bess had tried to rule him and make me the wife and her the husband would not have landed well with Elizabeth. Elizabeth did achieve a temporary reconciliation between the two, and Bess and her husband, quote, showed themselves very well content with Her Majesty's speeches, and in good sort departed together. And that was when they were together with Elizabeth. But then they made it back to their estates, and they decided to live separate lives the Earl declared that he would neither bed her nor board with her. And then, of course, Bess of Hardwick went off and started her own building projects and building Hardwick Hall. So that was in 1587, the year that Mary Queen of Scots was executed. The courts awarded Bess both Chatsworth and an income from her husband. So she went off and did her own thing and left him in dust. Moving on to our final infamous bad romance of this episode, that of Robert Dudley and Amy Robsart. Poor Amy, who was, you know, an actual human with goals, plans, and desires, is remembered solely for falling down a flight of steps and dying in suspicious circumstances. Thing is, Amy and Robert were once in love. Their marriage was a romantic love match, a carnal marriage, as William Cecil later commented. Amy was intelligent. She was a firm Protestant, and she received a good education. Then she fell in love. Amy put up with Robert going to prison for his suspected role in rebelling against Mary. She dealt with them being poor and for Robert's mounting debts. And then Elizabeth became queen, and Robert became the master of the horse. And then it all started going down the toilet for Amy. Going down the privy, I suppose. Court observers noted that Elizabeth never let Robert leave her side. Elizabeth was unmarried. In 1559, Amy was considered to be very ill, and diplomats noted that Elizabeth wasn't considering any foreign princes for her marriage because she was waiting for Amy to die to marry Robert. Several at court speculated that the queen would marry him in case his wife should die, as Lady Dudley was very ill in one of her breasts. Very soon, the same observers noted that Elizabeth never let Robert from her side. He did visit his wife for a couple of days at Easter in 1559, and then Amy came to London in May for about a month. In June, the new Spanish ambassador wrote that her health had improved, but she was very careful with her food. She also went to Suffolk, and then by September, she was living in the house of Sir Richard Verney in Warwickshire. By the autumn, several foreign princes were vying for the Queen's hand and they were very upset at Elizabeth's lack of interest in their various candidates. The Spanish ambassador noted that Lord Robert, he believed, was sending his wife poison, and Elizabeth was only fooling them, keeping Lord Robert's enemies and the country engaged with words until this wicked deed of killing his wife is consummated. Many of the nobles also blamed Dudley for Elizabeth's failure to marry, and there were plots to assassinate him. In March 1560, the Spanish ambassador told Philip II Lord Robert told somebody that if he live another year, he will be in a very different position from now. They say that he thinks of divorcing his wife. Amy never saw her husband again after that visit to London in 1559. Elizabeth really wasn't a fan of Robert being married. She apparently commanded him to say that he did nothing with her when he came to her, as seldom he did. And then came the 8th of September, 1560. It was fair and market day at Abingdon, and Amy was found dead at the foot of the stairs where she was living at Cumnor Palace. Now, Robert was at Windsor Castle with the Queen, and he was told of her death on the 9th of September, and he wrote to his steward, Thomas Blunt, who had himself just departed for Cumnor. He urged him to find out what had happened and to call for an inquest, which had already been opened when Blunt arrived. The account of Amy's death comes to us from Blunt, who wrote that Lady Dudley had risen early and would not that day suffer one of her own sort to tarry at home and was so earnest to have them gone to the fair that with any of her own sort that made reason for tarrying at home, she was very angry. So she was telling all of her servants, everybody that was living there, to go to the fair and that she would eventually follow. So the servants asked who would keep her company if they all went, and she made up some stories about how a Mrs. Owen would keep her company at dinner or she would go to the fair when she wanted and she was giving all kinds of strange answers. Blunt wrote, I have heard diverse tales of her that maketh me judge her to be a strange woman of mind. So who knows how Amy died. It's still one of those history's mysteries that there's all kinds of theories about suicide or that she was pushed. Who knows? There's even a theory that perhaps William Cecil had her murdered because he was the chief beneficiary of her death, because that meant that robert Lord Robert had to be put away for a while while there was this inquest, and it meant that he was probably never ever going to marry Elizabeth because there was all of this all of these accusations and all of this mystery surrounding his wife's death. so that's a theory I've heard as well that perhaps Cecil had had her killed. I don't know, even when they've done modern studies and inquests, there's a lot of different theories. Either way, it was a very bad scene between Amy and Robert there at the end. So there we have it. Three, four pretty awful romances from the Tudor period. Hopefully, if you are romantically linked this Valentine's Day, your partnership is better than these. And if you're not romantically linked, you can be grateful because honestly, any of these women would have traded places with you in a heartbeat. So that's it for this week. I'm still going to be back next time with this episode on Thomas Elliott's book, The Governor. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so at Tesco on Twitter at T-E-Y-S-K-O or Facebook.com slash EnglandCast. You can also follow me on Instagram at HTesco. Thanks so much for listening, and I will speak with you again very soon. (laughs) Bye.